So um, we had made it as far as verse 4, so Deuteronomy chapter 25. And then at verse, verse 5, it says, uh, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall be married to uh, shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, intimately that is, take her as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son, which she bears, will succeed to the name of the dead brother. That is, that his name may not be blotted out from Israel. So uh, certainly a very foreign concept uh, to us here in the Western world. And, uh, you know, our minds race with all kinds of sort of theatric explanations in this. But the simplicity of it was that in this ancient world and in this ancient culture, it was uh, to do with the inheritance of often very vast sections of land and property. So the nation of Israel was divided amongst the tribes and then amongst the families and amongst the individuals. And those uh, pieces of land stayed in their family inheritance eternally. God would allow for them to lease the land out but when the lease was up, it returned to the families. And so if a man was going to re, you know, inherit a portion of the land of Israel to himself, but he passed away before he had children, then what the Lord is mandating here is that the wife would then be married to the next, usually the next eldest brother and in becoming the husband, then the uh, child that was born, and we'll discuss that in a moment, would be the heir to the land and receive that land and perpetuate the name of not only that family, but the man who had passed away so that his portion of the inheritance uh, would remain with him. There's a different but similar thing which is derived from this even in our culture today, we have the shadows of this. So if there are three brothers and uh, if uh, one of the brothers passes away, then the portion of inheritance that would have belonged to him goes to his children, even to this day within law. One child or three children, his portion is divided equally amongst his children unless there is some mandate that is specifically recorded in the will or in the law, uh, that would naturally go to them. So within this succession, it's about the preservation of family names and the preservation of uh, family uh, land. Uh, the One of the debates that comes up in this, and really the scripture answers it, whether uh, the term son literally means son, like they have to have successive children until they have a son. Um, the, the debate is still amongst uh, especially the Jewish scholars in this is, um, seems to really mean male, but 
in context is what they're looking at. Did it literally only mean son or could it just mean child? Well, you know, not that any of us really care uh, about what the history of that was, but Numbers chapter 27, uh, verse 8, that issue had come up and Moses was dealing with it. And the Lord said, you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, if a man dies and has no son, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass to his daughter. So, so the scripture has already uh, clarified that as to what you know was intended within this passage of Deuteronomy chapter uh, 25. Previously, we had the explanation. And what's interesting to me is uh, the the fact that Ruth and the story, the book of Ruth and the story of Ruth. Um, you know, have so much to do with this, what is referred to as the Leverite marriage, where uh, her husband, uh, being of uh, Jewish descent, had uh, she was a Moabitess. Uh, they had uh, the family had fled out of Israel uh, during famine, and uh, they the sons had taken wives amongst the Moabites, and then uh, they passed away. And when they returned to the land, uh, his inheritance. Uh, was hanging in the balance. And uh, so she goes, Ruth does, at the advice of Naomi, her mother-in-law, to Boaz. Uh, and uh, actually, she proposes uh, to him. Now, if you've read that, we've talked about it from a number of different angles, where she goes to the threshing floor, uh, where basically all of the men working in the harvest were protecting the grain that they had just brought in from the harvest, and they would sleep there until the job was done and the grain was sold and uh, they had received their profits back from it. And uh, the scripture says that uh, she lay at his feet uh, while he slept. He awoke, startled because someone is at his feet, and there she says, cover me with the hem of your robe. Um, you know, there are those that have taught that somehow there is some sexual intimacy that occurs, and that's completely false. Uh, the hem of the robe, they would embroider their lineage upon it, and she's saying, to cover me with the hem of your robe, she's saying, marry me, include me in your lineage. And then we get the rest of the picture, which we're going to read uh, in verse 7 and following, where... Boaz says, well, there's actually someone who's closer kin to you than me, who is what becomes referred to as the kinsman redeemer. So the, the one who's closest to you in family lineage is the one who has first right uh, to marry you. And so we have to inquire of him. So uh, look at verse seven and following uh, with me here where it says, but if a man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. So he doesn't want to marry this woman or can't marry uh, this woman because of another marriage or previous obligations. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, and, and we shouldn't automatically think of that as somehow disgraceful, there might be all kinds of reasons behind that, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal 
from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal removed. I mean, imagine the insult. You know, it's just some odd stuff in uh, this. There are a number of things uh, to examine. Uh, I know that I sometimes um, view things a little askew, uh, not incorrect or heretical, but in praying about this and, uh, you know, wondering why would the Lord do this to, to you know, remove the sandal and all these different things. It's really sort of odd. Um, <clears throat> Romans 6.16 says that who you obey, that is your master, right? Adam and Eve were given the earth by God, told to care for it and uh, to tend it. Um, Lucifer appears on the picture and tempts Eve and thereby Eve brings the fruit to Adam, and they both choose to obey Satan, as bizarre a concept that is, and thereby Satan becomes their master indirectly, that, that they have listened to his voice, listened to his guidance, and obeyed him. They fall from the place where God is the only one that they listen to. Uh, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if any sinful thought that came into your mind, you automatically refused to listen to and never obeyed? Well, that would be wonderful if we never had to deal with that. But Adam and Eve opened the door for obedience to sinful things uh, in that. In Genesis, immediately after that fall, we have some of those first prophecies that are given uh, as the Lord speaks to Eve, actually in a restoring way, pronounces the curse upon her of childbirth and the pain associated with that. But he says that there will be war, enmity, hatred between her seed, capital S, singular, right? And the seed, plural, descendants, lineage of Satan, of, of the snake, of the serpent, of Lucifer. And that eventually what would happen is that the seed, singular, capital S, would crush the head of the serpent and bruise his heel. So interesting. Uh, an image of the cross, Jesus Christ bruised, tortured, uh, injured, so that he could destroy Satan and sin and death in the process. The evidence that Jesus Christ has destroyed Satan is a bruised heel. Satan presently is our master without Jesus Christ. Okay, The master of humanity, the redeemer of humanity, but he's not capable of redeeming humanity, right? He owns humanity, he possesses humanity, but he's not capable of redeeming humanity. What is the evidence of that? Jesus Christ's bruised heel. You remove Jesus Christ's sandal, right? And what you're going to see is bruised heel, spiritually speaking. You remove Lucifer's sandal, spiritually speaking, 
and his heel's fine. <laughs> he didn't destroy Jesus Christ, is the point. I know it's a stretch, but the picture here is only Jesus Christ is capable of redeeming us. That if you expose Satan, you know, humanism, evolution, all of these things that Satan teaches about, you know, how we're going to redeem ourselves. You know, you listen to the Beatles, right? It's getting better all the time. You've noticed that, haven't you? You know, if you've watched the news and seen the world around you, it's getting ridiculous with every passing moment. Satan has no capability to redeem humanity. And if you expose him, if you strip him and show him to the world, right? And that's going to happen. One angel is going to arrest him and stand him up as he's bound and chained to be cast in hell, and the world is going to marvel about this is the one who led humanity astray, who caused all of this pain and stuff. They're going to be astonished, right? Because we think of him as so powerful and so ominous and so threatening. And, and one angel is able to subdue him when the time comes. The power of lies. Oliver's talking in the introduction to this morning's service about the power of encouragement and lifting people up, oh, the power of lies. You know, we were praying about abortion in the Supreme Court. You know, oh, no, it's not about life or death. It's about choice. Hey, no, it's not. It's about life or death. And the lies that our culture listens to and they're destroyed by. Jesus Christ is capable Satan is indeed the one who had his sandal removed and was spat in the face. Uh, so the Leverite marriage is to protect and preserve family lineage and to uh, protect the land and the inheritance. And it has a great image of Jesus Christ as our kinsman redeemer and the one who can deliver us from shame and loss in all of this. Now, verse 11 uh, seems to be uh, just stuck in here, but it has a great background and a great meaning. If two men, verse 11, fight together, and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of the one attacking him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the genitals, then you shall cut off her hand, your eye shall not pity. Simplistically speaking, God is announcing his protection of masculinity and reproduction, right? And we all kind of smirk and wish we could just move on. But here's the issue. Our culture is wrestling with this tremendously. Tremendously. And if you dig into what the Lord is saying here, it's really quite remarkable, the picture that's being painted. Okay, <clears throat> So I think we could easily understand that there is a group in our culture that is attacking masculinity. And in recent years, we've even begun to see them very directly make statements about toxic masculinity and how this needs to be abolished and destroyed and done away with. Well, I want to just discuss 
hopefully briefly some things that surround this, and it may be confrontational for some of us. So uh, please be patient with me. Please understand that my heart here is to relay what the Lord relays right there about the protection of masculinity and reproductivity within our culture. Um, God gave Adam and Eve one commandment in regard to the earth when he turned it over to them, and he, the command was that they should go and fill the earth with their offspring, that they should reproduce and, and fill the earth with their offspring. Uh, you know where I'm headed. Those of you that have been here, my repetition is ridiculous. But the earth is not overpopulated. Uh, you can still fit all of the earth's population, even 7 billion people by the calculation, 6.9, inside the state of Texas. Every single person will have 1,268 square feet of their own. Uh, you know, you know, all my arguments, oh, what are we going to do with all the trash? I don't care what you do. Put them, put it on Antarctica. You know what I'm saying? I mean, uh, fit, you know, be the most creative people in the world, uh, to recycle and reduce and reuse. I'm, I'm, I'm with all of those programs and those thoughts. Point is that we don't have a population problem. Okay. Take the earth's population and spread it out evenly over the inhabitable portions of our land and people would have hundreds of square miles of their own. Okay. We have a few locations where they say we have population problem and really don't, we don't. What we have is traffic congestion because of the vehicles in Hong Kong, China and uh, Hong Kong, New York and Los Angeles. Uh, so there's an enemy of humanity that wants to kill the human race. And part of how he's doing that is convincing the human race that they should not procreate. Children are bad. You shouldn't have families. You shouldn't have multiple children. You know, the concept of getting rid of the human race. Homosexuality uh, actually cooperates with that mindset because no children are born to homosexual couples. So uh, here is where it gets sticky. Um, Christian psychologist, and you know I'm no fan of that, um, and uh, I don't agree with all of what uh, this man has to say, but uh, Joseph Nikolaski wrote a book called A Parent's Guide to Preventing Homosexuality. And he wrote that from what he had examined in the lives of children who had been brought to him who were struggling with sexual identity and homosexuality. And as a Christian and looking at psychology, he came to discover, and this is where it gets challenging, he came to discover that in 100% of the children that he dealt with, there was a very strong female relationship in that child's life who was very critical of the strongest male role model in that child's life. 
And as the bond between the female and the child grew over years, what happened was the child began to hate first the male role model that the female was directing her animosity towards until that child equally despised the male role model. Then what happens is that child then begins to hate their own sexual identity because the male doesn't want to be like the male who is the strongest role model in their life and the female doesn't want to be subjected to whatever the female has been criticizing in that male role model. The female doesn't want to experience it. So the male rebels against his sexual identity and the female rebels against her sexual identity. Attacking the masculinity in your life is forbidden by God. Listen, <clears throat> there's no doubt women have been abused by males in our culture. Males, by God's design, were meant to be, follow this ladies, incredibly aggressive. That was God's design. In order to provide for their families, number one, and then number two, to protect their families. But if that male is not submitted to the God who created him, then that aggression ends up being misdirected. Right? The provision is manipulated. The provision is abused. The protection is manipulated. The protection is abused. And the female is then left with a damaged spirit, number one, and psyche, Number two, her emotional state is such that she doesn't even have to walk away thinking, I'm going to have a warped sense about this and I'm going to purposely do damaging things. It's just reaction. It's just reaction. Then you move from there and those that have been altered by that, right, who become homosexual or perverted in any way along this line, begin to try and recruit others into their same mind frame. And they go pursuant. Here's something that's quite remarkable that the homosexual community doesn't want to talk about at all. 98% of the people who are actively homosexual, their first sexual experience, holding hands in an intimate way, kissing, doing anything that's associated with the sexual nature of our persons. Their first sexual experience was a homosexual experience. 98% of them, their first sexual experience was a homosexual experience. Here's where it gets really tragic. Of all of those people, 95% of them, their first sexual experience was a negative one 
some form of molestation or someone took advantage of them. One, excuse me, now they're saying three out of every four children before the age of 18 will be molested. Three out of every four now will be molested. The perversion of our culture is insane. We need to actively, uh, again, psychologists, not that I'm a huge fan in any way, Dr. James Dobson now says your children should not have sleepovers in anyone's home under any conditions. Well, their aunt, their uncle, their friend, the neighbor, we trust. Dobson says you have no way of knowing. The number one way that children are molested are by children. 50% of five-year-olds have already viewed pornography on a mobile device. 50% of five-year-olds have already. Our culture embraced sexual perversion in the 60s. And right now, you guys, you know, right? Sow to the wind, reap the whirlwind. Here's here's what I want to encourage you with this morning. If any of this is sticking in your heart and you're recognizing that's me, whether you would ever raise your hand or not, recognize the wrong and change the behavior. Okay, let's move to a lighter subject. Men are crazy, right? Ladies, testify, just say amen. You can say it quietly, but men are crazy, right? But you need us. And our culture needs us. Okay? You need to embrace all that is masculine. Hey, I'm outside with my three-year-old grandson. And he's scared about jumping off the top step. It's not even four feet. But he's scared about jumping off the top step to the ground. And I know... This is something a boy needs to do, right? He needs to jump off things. He needs to jump off things and hurt himself, so that he can learn to jump off things and not hurt himself. Okay, because there are going to be times where it's necessary, necessary to do it for good causes. So we start out by me saying, "Hey, as men, we don't act that way where we're scared." Let me help you. So we start with, hold on to my finger. And I hold tight, and he jumps off. And I show him, hey, no big deal, huh? Yeah, no big deal. Let's do it again. We do it three times, and then the fourth time I trick him. I'm holding tight, and as he leaps, I let go. And he hits the ground, and the knee comes right up and drills him in the bottom of the chin. And he bloodies his lip a little bit, and I stand up and cheer And say, hooray, blood and scars make better stories. Let's do it again. And now he's jumping off on his own, and I'm not holding his hand at all. There are going to be times, right, where the boys and the men in your lives need to risk themselves in order to be the protector. There's a fight, right? There's a fight described in this passage. Is there not a war outside our walls? And the men especially need to stand up and charge right into that fight. And ladies, 
We need you to stand right behind us and cheer us on. Now, men, these women are lunatics, are they not? They are out of their minds. The things, the stuff they think, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. See, now all you ladies have turned over to the offense side of things. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. I don't need the women in my life to be men. I, I do not want that. I've spoken at men's conferences and rebuked the men who were like, she never goes fishing with me. She won't hunt. She doesn't ride the motorcycle anymore. We can't. And I'm saying, well, it sounds like you want her to be like you. And often they'll say, yeah. And I'll say, well, it sounds like what you want is a man, not a woman. And where, where they shrink right down, you know. Hey? <clears throat> oh, I celebrate all that is woman. Even the weird way of thinking. You guys need to embrace our weird way of thinking. You need to celebrate it. We need to celebrate your weird way of thinking. And we need to work together. Together. Not, not attacking and criticizing and destroying and demeaning building up and encouraging these thoughts. My house would be ridiculously monastic if I was taking care of everything. You know, there would be next to no decorations in my house. Just, you know what I'm saying? This, you know, there would be like one memorable thing and it would be bolted to the wall. Like, well, you know what I'm saying? It just would be ugly. My wife beautifies things. And, and I fix things and work on things. And we work together. We celebrate one another. Our culture has been polarized. And as a result, it is being destroyed. It is being destroyed by this mindset. Men do not attack femininity. Ladies do not attack masculinity. God recognized, right? He creates man. And then what does he say? It's not good that this guy is alone. That's not good. And when it says that he took from his side, that it took a rib, it literally says in, in the original writing, it took from his side. It seems that God created man as one whole being, but recognized it's not good that he's alone. So he divided man. And made the effeminate and the masculine. So when they're telling us, men, get in touch with your feminine side. I say, well, I have and I married her. I'm very in touch with my feminine side. And, and uh, ladies, if there is to be a masculine side, wait for the Lord to produce that. Don't become masculine and thereby diminish that which is so beautiful and so beneficial to our society, our cultures, and our families. Feminine. These things are both needed. And the whole sociological mindset, especially to destroy the masculine. Look, if you're trying to attack right, a couple, if you're trying to attack a man and a woman, the, I can guarantee you the one you want to deal with first is the male. Remove the threat. Get rid of the one who can most effectively combat you. And that's what our enemy is doing. 
doing everything he can to destroy the masculine in our society. It, it doesn't have to be that, you know, we're all clad in leather and carrying guns. But we do need to be masculine. And we do need to be providers and protectors. Our culture is profoundly in need of these things. So uh, if you get the opportunity, um, again, I don't strongly promote the book. Um, I'm, I'm not a big fan in any way of uh, psychology. But uh, Joseph Nikolaski, A Parent's Guide to Preventing Homosexuality. And uh, it's, it's developed quite well and, and might be very effective for you. So verse 13, separate subject. You shall not have in your bag differing weights, a heavy and a light. You shall not have in your house different measures, a large and a small. You shall have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure that your days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who behave unrighteously, are an abomination to the Lord your God. Uh, if you're reading that thinking, like, I'd, what in the world? You know, different ways, measures. Uh, it, it was to do with buying and selling. So, you know, if, if you had a set of scales and somebody came and you were going to buy a, a pound of flour, well, you used a heavy, you know, pound. You put that one up there. And they've got to put a whole bunch more flour on there to make it even out. You know, and, you know, if you're if you're selling, you know, you use the light so that every single transaction benefits you. You know, measure out, you know, you get the smaller, you know, it's not actually a cup, it's a little smaller than a cup. You know, if you're, you know, doing it in benefit of yourself, you know, larger. You're always, you know, switching things around so that you are all the always the beneficiary. Honesty is what the Lord is saying in all of your doings. You know, bill for what you're supposed to be billing for. Charge for what you're supposed to be charging for. You know, I encourage employees, make sure you're working the whole time you're at work. You know, in the way that the boss wants you to. Uh, maybe it isn't, you know, that you got to be moving every single second. Maybe your job requires that you be moving every single second. It's a terrible thing that employers are being robbed in hours earned all the time. We're undermining ourselves. We're undermining our culture. We're undermining businesses when we do that. As Christians, as believers, honesty is what the Lord is calling us to in, in these things. In our measure, in our money making, it needs to be an honesty, not, not something that we're doing uh, in order to just benefit ourselves. In verse 17, the Lord, remember this is uh, Moses telling them of uh, how they're supposed to behave once they come into the land. So the Lord says in verse 17, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks. So and that was where the weakest... And the sickest were amongst them. They took advantage of that vulnerability and attacked from behind. And that's actually where Joshua became such a commendable general and leader in the nation of Israel was by defending those weak ranks, how they attacked from behind 
uh, all the stragglers at your rear when you were uh, tired and weary. He did not fear God. That's you know, always the case when the weak and the vulnerable are being attacked and taken advantage of. There's no fear of God. Therefore, it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So, Amalek, again, attacked Israel as recorded in Exodus chapter 17 when they were leaving out of Egypt. And Amalek was just always taking advantage of them at their weakest point. Uh, many uh, see the Amalekites as a picture of the flesh, uh, which constantly battles against the Holy Spirit and must be struggled against until it is completely Conquered. Galatians chapter 5, verse 17 says, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. Literally, they're at war with one another. The flesh and its desires against the Holy Spirit. So that you do not do the things that you wish. I think if you meditate on that just a moment, you'll know exactly what Paul is saying, right? You want to do what's right. You want to do what you should, and yet an appetite, a desire of your flesh takes you to places that you really wish you wouldn't go. There is a war. There is a conflict between our flesh and the Holy Spirit. Seeing these things done away with is very important. The obvious image for the nation of Israel later becomes their first king, Saul who is commanded by God to go and destroy the Amalekites. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 3, uh, Samuel the prophet speaking on behalf of the Lord says, Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have, and do not spare them, but kill both men and women, infants and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Sounds extraordinarily harsh when you hear it. It's, it's genocide by the world's standard. What's not recorded is how incredibly murderous and brutal the people of Amalek were. To all of the nations around them, constantly attacking and killing and destroying and torturing and mutilating all of their neighbors. In particular, Israel. Very focused on wanting to annihilate Israel. Wanted to see them completely wiped out. To be an Amalekite was to want the annihilation of Israel. And God is saying... Uh, this perennial enemy of yours, if they're left to exist, is going to utterly destroy you. Uh, I think you understand uh, the appetites of your own flesh and how if they're not kept in check, then they will utterly destroy you. Some of us have experimented with that to much greater degrees than others, where we pursued the appetites of our flesh to such a degree that it actually did us great physical harm. And the Lord is saying, you've got to combat these things. You've got to get rid of them. Saul does not do it. He disobeys.
the Lord. He goes and he attacks the Amalekites, but he does what a lot of us do with our own flesh. He just destroys those things which are obviously combative towards him. He keeps the things that are pleasurable and beneficial to him. Destroy the soldiers. Get rid of those of fighting age, right? Don't address, uh, you know, the good-looking younger women. Don't, don't get rid of any of the food source, you know, cattle and beef and all these things. And then when he's confronted by Samuel the prophet, he actually blames that on God. Oh, I, I did this so that we could make offerings to the Lord. And there, Samuel the prophet confronts him and says, you know, to obey is better than sacrifice. If you had obeyed the Lord, you move through the history of Israel forward in time, and you have at least two very distinct, there are maybe as many as five, but two very distinct occasions where survivors of the Amalekite nation tried to once again destroy the nation of Israel. Many of you have read the account of Esther and how the opposition that came against them was actually a descendant of King of uh, Agag of the Amalekites. Go all the way forward to Jesus' birth. Herod is a descendant of Agag, King of the Amalekites, and he tries to kill Jesus, slaughtering all of the children in Bethlehem under two years of age. Imagine if Saul had just done his job and gotten rid of the Amalekites so that there was nothing left to attack them. Too gruesome for you to consider? At least take the spiritual lesson, right? That if you do not deal with the things the Lord is telling you to deal with, they will ultimately, they may ultimately destroy you. Uh, they, they will at least take every attempt they can to destroy you. Okay, um, I, I had a man who went through the residential discipleship program, CRD. He was a heroin addict, and he came here because of my involvement with CRD. He came here to work with us, and he was our worship leader for a time. But <clears throat> he wouldn't deal with rebellion in his life. And uh, maybe you know what I'm saying, but I'll describe uh, simple things about uh, doing the same song in worship every single Sunday until several people from the church are coming to me and saying, can we please never sing that song again? And I'm going to him and saying, you need to like get rid of that song. And next week, playing the song. <clears throat> Go to him and say, you can't do it. Get his song sheet from him. Remove it from his possession and say, don't play a song. Next week, playing that song again. <clears throat> Show up. He's got people involved in the worship team who he doesn't know it, but I just dealt with him two days ago about their present day drug use. And he's involved them with the worship team without talking to me. If, if it feels like I'm talking behind his back out of turn, let me finish and hear what I'm saying. <clears throat> he refused to follow my leadership and my guidance, and ultimately the conflict grew till he left this church. He leaves this church, moves in with a woman that he's not married to. Next thing I hear, they're frequenting the bars. 
I'm confronting him over this and saying, guy, you, you were delivered from addiction. You can't be toying with this. This is going to take you right back down the same road. Basically, I got, I know what I'm doing. Now I hear he's using drugs and I go and I say, are you seriously using drugs again? This is absolutely insane. Yeah, but they're not the hardcore drugs I used to use. And then I get a call at 4.30 in the morning and he's dead. From worship leader to overdose on heroin. His nephew passed away. He returned to the state that he had come from, went to his nephew's memorial service, found out from people at the memorial service that the drugs that he got, that his nephew got, were from his previous dealer. He left the memorial service, went right to that dealer's house and purchased the same drugs that his nephew had purchased. Shot up for the first time in five years. And for whatever reason, his girlfriend looked at her watch as he shot up and a minute and 30 seconds later, dead. If you don't deal with the Amalekites in your life, make no mistake, they will... Find a path to destroying you. And they will. The compromise will lead. When God is in your face, in your heart, when he won't leave you alone, when he's waking you up in the middle of the night and saying, deal with this, deal with it. Deal with it. Seek the strength of his Holy Spirit and deal with it. Because whether you recognize how it's destroying you or not, right? that's a blatant example. That way, but the other areas which are so subtle, they will sneak up on you and poison you to death. Christ, Christ doesn't put these things out in front of us, right? We read it, oh my goodness, kill the children, oh my goodness, kill the nursing infants. How radical. The Lord knows some of those nursing infants are going to give birth to children which are going to try to destroy my nation. Some of those nursing infants, as Oliver said this morning, the scripture assures us, those that die as child go directly to the presence of the Lord. The Lord is saying, I would much rather that they come to me right now than they grow up, become a heathen, reject me, and end up in hell. We need to understand that even when Christ is asking us to do radical things, it's for our benefit. There's no sin, there's no hatred, there's no animosity involved in God's motivation. It is love. It is goodness. He wants fulfillment in our lives. Obedience is the thing that will produce that. Back to Romans 6, verse 16. Who you obey, that is your master, whether sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. God brings that that obedience rate down to sin and righteousness, death and eternal life. Let Christ produce life in your life. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father, we are grateful for your love, your grace, your work in our lives, and we ask that you would Fill us with the strength of your Holy Spirit, that we could obey you, that we would obey you. Lord, we long to see your kingdom come and your will being done in us and through us and by us. Make it possible. Give us what we need. Help us to fulfill your plan for our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen.